Hello, welcome to People of Politicians. The episode you're about to listen to features John Paul Langbrook, who is the member for Surfers Paradise in the Queensland Parliament. And I really enjoyed this episode. I, I know I've been saying this a lot lately, but I think this is, again, another one of my favourite episodes. Um, just to talk to him about his long career, um, his time as, you know, he's been leader of the opposition, he's been leader of the of the Liberal National Party, and so he's had a lot of different portfolio responsibilities he's been involved in a lot of different um things in parliament i mean you know he's been in government and he's been in opposition so he's got a lot of different experiences uh it, it was just really great to talk to him I, I we had a really great chat um i really enjoyed it uh, i've been enjoying a lot of these episodes lately if you haven't had a chance to uh, you should really check out the last couple of episodes with sterling hinchliffe and uh, Ted O'Brien, those two are really good episodes as well. And oh, Deb Frecklington and Andrew Powell, those were some really great episodes too. Uh, and there's still more to come, hopefully soon. I've got uh, Ray Stevens will be the next one, next episode after this, and then Julian Simmons is the one after that. Uh, and then uh, I've booked a few more people in, so I'll keep you posted on on who's coming up. But at the moment, that's who who's on my schedule. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy it, be sure to like, subscribe, share, review, all those normal things, particularly if you can review on iTunes. That seems to really help, uh, you know, help us get noticed so that more people can find this podcast. Uh, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's been listening because we just hit, uh, we're over 2,000 plays now, which is, I think, pretty good considering that we haven't even been going for a year. And so more people are finding out about it it's a, a far cry from the first month when I released the first episode and it got about 15 plays. So now each episode's gained a fair few more than that, which is great. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. Hello, welcome to People Who Are Politicians. I'm your host, Matt Antonelli, and today I'm joined by John Paul Langbrook, the member for Surface Paradise. How are you? Hello, Matt. Well, thank you. Uh, let's start with Surface Paradise itself. Could you give us an overview of what it's like and um, what the area's boundaries are? Well, for people who know the Gold Coast, it's a very coastal seat. It goes from the spit to the casino. Uh, so it's the whole coastal strip, and it goes a couple of kilometres in behind uh, including suburbs like Sorrento, Benoa, Clear Island Waters, and for people who come to the Gold Coast who know the Carrara markets, it's all along that part of the Broadbeach Narang Road. So it's a very small electorate. I think it's the second smallest in the state behind Brisbane Central. Uh, it has um, a perception that it's a very wealthy electorate um, when it's actually not the case, um, but I think most MPs would say that about their own constituencies. Uh, but it's a certainly a very pleasant place to be the member for, and if there are young people who listen and know something about politics, when you say that you're the member for Surface Paradise, <laughs> it's a pretty cool thing to say. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you get the, the best part of the coast, really, then. the the um, That whole front strip from the spit down is, is a pretty nice place to chill out and... Mm. Um, you know, surface shops, surf. broadbeach shops, <laughs> yeah. And you know, in a day and age when people aren't necessarily that aware about politics, when you're able to say you're the member for Surface Paradise, it really is the jewel in the crown on the Gold Coast. There are 11 seats on the Gold Coast in the yep. state parliament. It's the safest seat in the state 
for the LNP, which I'm very proud of because when I first ran for it, people told me I'd never win it and that oh, no one else nominated for it. <laughs> yeah, but the point was no one else nominated for it because they thought I couldn't, no one would win it. Mm. So, you know, that makes me very proud that I've made it a very safe seat along with the team who've supported me and, uh, and the people who continue to support me as voters. And before you decided to nominate for this seat, mm. what, what were you doing? I was a dentist, so yeah. I'd graduated from the University of Queensland, had gone overseas, as many young uh, professionals do, and had lived in England for three years, and I came back in 1987 and established, or joined an established dental practice at Ashmore and Surface, which is how over the subsequent 14 years I got to be known by thousands of people because I had thousands of patients, and I was a dentist, and then eventually I became... Uh, president of the Surface Chamber of Commerce. I was there, uh, joined the Chamber of Commerce when Tom Tate was the uh, president and he asked me to succeed him after I uh, lost the by-election to replace Rob Borbidge in the seat of Surface in 2001. Yeah, I was going, going to ask about that, that first, um, the first go at this seat mm. that you, you know, weren't successful in, mm. but how, what were you... Um, how did you feel after that loss? Did you were you always going to run for this again, or um, how difficult was it to still stay motivated to, to rerun for the seat? Well, it's interesting because um, I ran in a by-election to replace Rob Borbidge when the National Party had been decimated in the two thousand and one state election. So the Nationals and Liberals had the Liberals had three seats and the Nationals had eleven out mm. of eighty nine. So. Rob Borbidge quit on the night of the election. I ran in, in a by-election that was held on Labor Day in 2001, May the first weekend in May 2001, and there were 11 candidates, which was a record for a by-election, and I came second to Lex Bell, who was a former mayor of the city and who was the councillor for this area. So, Well-known person. He was yeah. certainly well-known, which is why people said to me, you're never going to win, and, um, you know... I ran and I came second and so then people said oh that was quite a surprise you did very well you'll never beat him but, um, <laughs> but well, well done. done and to my, my <laughs> wife and I my wife Stacy said to me I said do you think I should run again and Stacy said to me what else are you going to do for the rest of your life watch television because I was a 42 year old or 41 year old dentist and uh, it didn't seem to her like there were many other things that I was necessarily going to love doing if I was going to stay a dentist Mm. and it certainly seemed very appealing as a job so that when I was in that campaign uh, people would say oh yes you're a dentist that's always been a good thing but running for politics wow that's fantastic and so I was I did want to run again but in politics you can never be sure about these things and I had to wait for a number of things to happen over that term the from 2001 the by-election to 2004 when the election was going to be held and that was whether the Liberals and Nationals would fight about who would run in the seat, because mm-hmm. we used to have that debate. It had been a Nationals seat under Rob Borbidge, who was the Premier. So they had to agree that the Liberals could run in it, mm. because I'd come second, and the then Nationals candidate was a lady called Susie Douglas, who subsequently went on to become a councillor, um, and her husband, Alexander Douglas, became a state member for Gavin. Uh, then I... Um, was allowed to run as a Liberal, but then it depended on whether there were other people who nominated. And as I've already said to you, no one else nominated because they said, you'll never win. And so we came to the election in February February 7th, 2004, 
and that's when I won very easily because yeah. in a general election people tend to vote the way that they do normally as opposed to what happens in a by-election. But no one else could see that happening, including me. Yep, so you uh, you win in 2004 and you get to go up into Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like the first time, like walking into Queensland Parliament? Well, when you don't expect to win and you don't <laughs> have a political pedigree, yeah. it's pretty daunting. When I remember sitting in the Parliament uh, and the Liberals and Nationals were not in coalition, so we were... In, on the opposition benches, but I remember looking across and about 30 feet away from me was Peter Beattie in our, as the Premier, and I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm here with Peter Beattie, <laughs> let alone all the other 87 other members of the Parliament. Yeah. Uh, plus, I had a dental practice that I then had to still think about how it was going to operate because I was a sole practitioner. I did employ people, but it was my business, and I had that concern as well, as well as the fact that I was a a novice in politics. So, I mean, judging from like where you've started to where you are now, you've got a lot more experience. So how do you start to build up your political knowledge as a novice in Parliament? I wasn't a complete novice in oh, the well, sense that I'd... Right, I know, I know what you're asking. <laughs> I wasn't steeped in other MPs, Yeah, or yeah. I wasn't steeped in it. Like, if you're a Labor politician, you've come through the unions and you've been an organiser and you've worked on campaigns... There was no way that I'd done that. I'd only joined the Liberal Party in 1999. Mm. When I got elected, I'd then been there for uh, nearly five years in the Liberal Party. So, look, it really was a very steep learning curve. I remember saying that in my first term. I was a a Liberal shadow minister for a number of portfolios, including police, public works and housing, um, education and the arts. So you had to learn a lot and give a lot of speeches and... uh, you know, it, it was quite daunting, but it was a great learning curve and something that I certainly enjoyed. And um, I got re-elected in 2006, and by 2009, after the uh, that election, when Lawrence Springborg lost to Anna Bly, I became the leader of the opposition. So I must have learnt pretty quickly, because <laughs> five years from becoming an MP to becoming leader of the opposition, that doesn't happen very often. What's it like working in Parliament with other MPs. So you, you obviously the Liberal National Party will have its own debates or when well, when you were leader of the opposition that would have been the LNP by that point you two mm-hmm. parties merged. Mm-hmm. Um, you have your internal debates and you know your discussions but what's it like working with MPs in the entire parliament? It's very interesting because one of the things that I've learned that when you have 89 people but now it's 93 because we have 93 seats there's usually someone in whatever topic that you're debating whether it's in a committee or looking at a bill uh, that comes before the parliament there's a very wide diversity of knowledge within the parliament and that's something that's very interesting so I was the first dentist elected to the parliament since 1937 so now we have another one, Anthony Lynham, who's the Minister for Natural Resources. But there were no dentists in the Parliament. So whenever you had a debate about something that was dear to my heart, fluoride, for example, mm-hmm. people would turn to me and say, well, at least we want to hear a professional's point of view as well as any other point of view. And so whether it's fluoride or whether it was anything to do with any other uh, issue to do with policing or education, there's usually someone who knows something about it, and it doesn't fall along party lines. So that's one of the great things about the parliament that you don't necessarily see when you just see the highlights or vignettes from question time. I was going to say, because a lot of people just see snippets of question time Mm. or, I guess, you know, someone giving a press conference that's scathing of the other Mm. party, 
but is it that negative working in the committees or is it actually quite a positive yeah it is there's a lot of collegiality that you don't see publicly because that wouldn't be interesting for the media to portray it like that but when Members are on committees to look at bills, which are ma- and the committee will be made up of all parties, including independents. They look at it across a range of issues, um, so they supposedly can Im- get more information to an- advise the department and then the minister, so they make the legislation as good as possible. And like, as you mentioned before, there's obviously that whole wealth of knowledge, and every person's sort of got their speciality. There's probably things that come through Parliament that you're not, uh, that you don't have a great experience with. Mm-hmm. How do you then um, judge legislation that comes through, whether it's in your party room or out in the open? Like, do you have a criteria, philosophy that you follow, or, or how do you judge legislation that comes through? Well, the through? best way in, in the time that I've been in is we have a very robust committee structure mm. so that when there's a bill that is coming before the House, you can look at the committee report and on that report is how you can do a speech and you can take elements of what the committee has reported on that you might find interesting and actually expand or expound uh, more about that when you give a speech in the parliament. Other times, though, if you're a shadow minister, it's a tradition that you may not necessarily speak on bills that aren't in your area. So I'm the shadow minister for sport and racing, Commonwealth Games and multicultural affairs. Uh, there aren't a lot of bills that come up in those areas because they're sort of subsections of other departments. Yeah. But it, often you don't, you may not give speeches in those other areas. And um, if you're the health or education shadow or the assist or the shadow treasurer, then you would be, you would give a bill, you'd give a speech on those on a bill that affects your portfolio. But it's also a way for backbenchers to get their name known more by giving speeches on lots of bills, which is what I said to you I had to do when I first began. When you're, when you're a minister in government, you traditionally don't speak on other bills. Right. So except something in your own department. That's changing a bit, but normally uh, it's not up... You're a minister. You're supposed to be taking care of your portfolio. You're not necessarily supposed to be giving speeches about an education or bill. Or giving a, a press conference. That's something that's not really in your domain. Exactly. Unless you would say, you know, for example, if it's an education bill... And nearly everyone has everyone does have schools in their electorate, and they might want to do a speech about an education bill to highlight some of the great things that happen in education in their electorate. Yeah. So they can then distribute the speech in their own electorate because that's something members are always aware of what their own electorate is focusing on the things that they, the member, are talking about in the parliament. Uh, I did want to ask just quickly about the um, the merger of the Liberal and National. Parties. You said before that when you first ran in the seat, there was a Liberal candidate and there's a National candidate. Mm. Do you think the um, the merger has allowed you to like work much better with those people that would traditionally be Nationals or traditionally be Liberals? It's all sort of become one. Um, well, I guess it's become one party, but yes. is, it, is it is it much easier to work with? Yes, those well, it, it formalised a relationship that was actually pretty good. Anyway, so I was the first Liberal leader, if you want to call me by my former party, the first Liberal leader since Digby Denham in 1911, the first Liberal leader of an opposition, because the traditional leaders of the opposition in Queensland had been nationals. nationals, uh, But we'd always had a very good relationship in coalition, 
uh, as liberals and nationals, and so all it did was formalise that. Now, of course, there are challenges because of some of the diversity of things that happen in the regional areas and the pressures that they're facing compared to city areas, and that is actually a bit of a challenge for us into the future because of the rise of parties like One Nation. So you'll tend to get country members and regional members who are more enamoured of a One Nation type party mm-hmm. or preferences and getting their preferences than we are in the southeast, where One Nation doesn't get a lot of support. Yeah. And so that's going to be a challenge into the future. But I'm confident the LNP will survive that. And um, the other thing, of course, was that it was important for us to be one party to overcome the issue of optional preferential voting. Mm. Labor have taken that away now by bringing in compulsory preferential, which some people have suggested means that potentially could lead to the demise of the LNP, but I'm sure that structurally, from what I understand, the way it's been put together, that can't and won't happen. Well, I I guess um, even if you've got people in the rural uh, seats that that have a different view of the people in the city, you're your party room's one, so you, you get to have those conversations with rural MPs that perhaps if you were separate parties, you wouldn't have as often. That's true. But, of course, there are then going to be challenges that our opponents look to exploit, that if you are one party and you have a regional position or an MP who has a, a regional MP who's got a particular position that might be at odds with what a city MP might believe then that can be exploited by the opposition to say, by the government, as it is at the moment, to say, look at this party, they've got people in who believe really weird things, just as, and that they then say, why is the LNP tolerating views like that? And because we would say, well, we're a broad church. Mm. Uh, But it's the leader who sometimes has the dilemma of having to explain that position because otherwise there's a problem. You've got a diverse range of opinions, but... You do that in the Labor Party as well. It's just that the, they have to balance what they think is going to be the best electoral outcome from what it is they explain to people. And you've you've been leader, um, leader of the opposition and leader of the RMP then, and so you've had to make those speeches and mm. um, you know explain to people the LNP's stance and certain things. What was that experience like leading the party as opposed to just like being a shadow minister or a minister in the party? Well, very challenging. It was... Um, um, I worked very hard for two years, from March to the April 2009 to March 2011, when I got replaced by Campbell Newman after the floods. Uh, but you know, polling-wise, I was doing partic- very well. Like, I became preferred premier against Anna Bly, uh, and we were leading by a mile in the lead-up to the what became the 2012 election, but was... Um, in late 2010, we were leading 60-40, two-party preferred. So the public had decided they were sick of Anna Bly and the unions weren't supporting her because she had sold assets and that became a long-running debate. Then, of course, we had the floods of 2011 uh, and I ended up getting replaced because Anna Bly had a big comeback in the polls mm. and my own party got... Um, very nervous about whether we'd win that election and when Campbell Newman put his hand up as the mayor of Brisbane then basically everyone wanted it to happen that he should become the leader from outside the party. But in terms of me as the opposition leader, I worked very hard as I've said with a, uh, a team and um, it was, I 
would say that you're up from six in the morning till midnight every day. You knew everything that was happening in your own team as well as the stories of the day. And it's the toughest job in politics because the government were always at pains to try to bring me down to mm. say, oh, this bloke can't be the Premier of Queensland. Uh, and, uh, and yet the polls were saying that we were on track to do that. And clearly, like, even though, you know, there's probably disappointment in losing the leadership, but um, you still continued to then work quite hard after that and get into government with Cameron Newman as Premier mm. and got in, like, with quite a substantial victory. Um, what was the feeling like moving from opposition to government? Exhilarating. <laughs> so that night of the election um, in March 2012... I was on radio, ABC radio, in the foyer of the new ABC studios. Uh, and I was on there with, I think, John McKell and um, uh, former health minister Stephen Robertson was from the Labor Party. And so it was an absolute shellacking. We won 78 seats and out of 89. Uh, and you're right, I, I was, um, it was like a feeling of relief because I'd then been in the parliament for eight years and I'd only been in opposition. So to feel that we're finally going to be in a position to take the Treasury benches was, was a great feeling. And I'd always said to Campbell Newman when he replaced me that it was a great honour for me to have been leader of the party and uh, uh, it wasn't about me. I, I just wanted us to win. And um, no one can ever take that away, that I was one of 45 people who've been leader of the opposition in Queensland. So I subsequently served as Minister for Education, Training and Employment. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that. What, was, what were some things... I. I know it was, um, you know, you probably want to win much more than one term, but in that one term as Minister of Education, Training mm. and Employment, um, what were some things that you were able to, to get done in that role? Well, one of the main things that I said that I wanted to do in the Education Department was make sure that people understood the value of state schooling, because I went to state schools. I went to Burley Head State School and... Sunnybank State High, Cooparoo State High and Brisbane State High. My sister also went to state schools. She went to uh, Runcorn, Runcorn Heights State School and um, Salisbury State High. So we were both state school educated and I wanted. it felt like state schooling was almost being seen as the third option behind um, private and Catholic okay. schools. Yep. And I wanted to restore state schooling to a better footing um, and so we were able to do that. For the, by the time that we left government, it was the first time we'd seen a, an increase in the proportion of state schooling enrolment compared to non-state. So traditionally it's a two-third, one-third split. State schooling is, gets two-thirds of the students and non-state, Catholic and private, get one-third. And it would be heading to 60-40, you know, and mm. we were able to arrest that and state schooling enrolment increased because of our focus on three things quality teaching uh, discipline and autonomy we wanted schools to state schools even though they're in one system to also say that if you're at Salisbury State High School or um, Kebra Park State High School or somewhere up in North Queensland you still can be autonomous and make decisions just like private schools do yeah cause based on their own communities you um, your uh, government brought in the independent state schools. Independent public schools, independent that's right. Independent public schools, right. Yeah, yeah, a policy we got from Western Australia, mm. which meant giving them a little bit of extra resource, about $50,000 a year, but but also to give them the understanding that they could 
do things on their own. If you were at Palm Beach Corumban State High School, which is a uh, sporting excellence school, we wanted them to form partnerships with local clubs. Mm. Uh, up in Cairns, there was one that did had a lot to do with music, so form a, a partnership with James Cook University and encourage students to go on there. So those sorts of things. Were, it was more about changing the mindset and saying to principals, you're in charge in your own school, and that means also giving you some more disciplinary authority, which I note today we've got the federal government saying that teachers need to be given more uh, ability to have discipline because parents know that their kids can't study when uh, classes are being disrupted. Uh, So in uh, 2015, you don't get to stay in government? We lose. On my birthday, January 31st, 2015, it was absolutely terrible. I was on TV for six hours uh, with Jackie Trad, who uh, became the Deputy Premier, Mm -hmm. and while I watched uh, 30 of our colleagues from our 43... uh, We had 73 seats by the time of the election, and 31 of those, or 32 of those, lost their seats. So it was terrible. And how do you then go... Because you still then have a job to do, you're still the member for Surfers Paradise, you still have a community to serve. Mm. How do you sort of um, like get motivated again to then go, well, I still have a job to do, even though it wasn't the outcome that I wanted? It's just what you have to do in politics. It's what we try and teach our kids to do in life. Like, you know, not everything goes swimmingly and perfectly. And so I've certainly seen lots of ups and downs in my time in in politics, including (coughs) losing that election. Uh, I then became the deputy opposition leader to Lawrence Springborg. So, um, you know, just a couple of years after I'd been replaced as opposition leader, I became the deputy opposition leader again. And that meant having to work on new policies in that term, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as try to call all those members who'd lost their seats, try to rebuild the party, which, of course, people weren't feeling too good after losing an election from 73-9 up. Yeah. I was going to say, of course, uh, I never really thought of that, that those people that have lost their seats, you'd want to make sure they're still on board to try again in three, four years' time. Yeah, whether they want to try again or whether they... Just feel like they've been almost chewed up and spat out by the party system, by the electorate. And for some people, like, they had trouble finding jobs. Mm. And there's also a real issue that when you've been an MP for three years, you know, you can start to feel like you're pretty important. And when it's all over, it is a real comeuppance, you know, to suddenly realise not just you have to find a job, but... Some of the people you thought were your friends are no longer your friends, which shows they weren't your friends anyway. Uh, but it's really tough to deal with. So personally, at least I would say to my wife, well, I'm happy I've still got a job mm. as the member for surface, which I always say is the most important thing, because if I didn't have that, then I wouldn't be in the parliament. And then you've got to gird your loins and get on with it again. Mm. And so, um, you know, you're st- still not in government yet, but clearly... You know, you're aiming for the next election to, to get back in, and it's pretty close. So, um, if you were to, you know, sit back on the government benches, mm. what's sort of the biggest thing that you're that you'd like to get done if you got back in? Well, my first priority is always my electorate and yeah. the city of the Gold Coast because mm-hmm. that's you know where I'm from. And if we were to win the election in October 2020, then 
the decision about what happens to you next is really out of my hands because I'm there to serve as one of a member of a team who <laughs> the leader of the opposition, Deb Frecklington, yeah. would then subsequently, if she became the Premier, will then decide what role she might like me to serve in. And so I've always said to um, people who are under whom I've served, including Campbell Newman and Lawrence Springborg and Tim Nichols. Uh, all have been leaders of the opposition while I was uh, in the parliament and Jeff Seney as well. And I've never asked for any particular role. I've just said to them, I'm happy to fit in with what you'd like me to do. So I'm currently serving as a shadow minister in those areas that we spoke about. Uh, and you know, we'll wait to see decides. what happens. Yeah. yeah. In our party, it's not the factions that decide. You don't get elected by a little subgroup. We only have the leader at their discretion who chooses who serves in what role. The whole aim of this podcast is to sort of let people know that there's a lot of work that gets done in Parliament that mm. perhaps they don't see. Mm. Um, but a lot of people are sort of disengaged with politicians. Just, I guess, like we mentioned before, they might just see the snippet of question time or something negative in, in the news. Mm. How do you go about re-engaging people with the political system? I try to just speak to people as I'm speaking to you now in a very normal way and I'd be interested to hear when you know your description of how you know, you've now spoken to a lot of MPs and councillors and everyone has their own style yeah. so I just try to be and tell people look I'm just an average person who happened to in, end up in this job that I never expected to <laughs> and so by being friendly and communicative with my own electorate and then with people such as you who want to talk to me, whether they're students at university doing assignments, communicate with them like that and have people say, oh, well, I've met that John Paul Langbrook, he seems okay, and if they want to know more about what we do, then I'm happy to tell them. Yeah, oh, well, speaking of all the previous people I've spoken to, um, most of them seem to think that when they do have these sorts of conversations that, you know, it's a very positive experience, even if the person has a perhaps like that they want to happen that you're working on and it hasn't happened yet or something mm. the conversations are still quite good and perhaps it's just the uh, like the public might say all politicians are, are not are not good but mm. my local MP is fine yeah that's a strange <laughs> thing isn't it that when they that people can often say that about politicians oh politicians that yeah but not my local guy or, or woman that they, they think they're okay but look really it's just um what I've tried to do is break down the perceptions that I may have had myself when I was at university when I would walk past Parliament House and I'd be going to QIT or QUT as it's called now and I had no idea what used to happen there. And politics and politicians seemed like a long way distant from someone who was 22 or 23 years old. Whereas now I like to say I want to bring young people through and I've always done that so my staff members here, are, one of them is a former uni student who may have just graduated or have done their course and bring young people through as well because it is a very important job and it's for it does affect people's lives and the best way to try to make people understand that they could do it as well is to say to them, you could do this as well and uh, but you need to learn about it, you need to have a life. Uh, you, you shouldn't come in and try to do it when you're very, very young, I don't think, because you haven't got those people skills that you develop having lived a life. And yeah, just getting that life experience is yeah. probably the one of the biggest. Like if you are, you know, um, fresh out of uni or 
uh, and go straight into politics, you mm. don't know, I guess, have that experience of dealing with people or dealing with in a business or at a workplace or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. The tr- that trouble of that um, theory is that there are some... We've got some very young members of the parliament now and you can't really question... Once they get elected by an electorate, it's a bit hard to question whether they should or shouldn't be there. They have to deal with it. The trouble is that sometimes I think they can have trouble dealing with normal life once the they're brain. outside the parliament because yeah. it's a, it's like a... It's an artificial type of existence being as being a member of parliament. After your time is in politics is over, you know, hopefully by retirement and not by an election loss. Mm. Um, what kind of legacy would you hope to have left behind? So whether it's just in surfers or um, in Queensland as a whole. Well, I've seen a lot of people come and go, so I'd probably say that locally, I'd like people to say, well, he was always a good advocate on behalf of big and small issues in surface paradise. So, you know, we've improved the the place, the city of the Gold Coast. So most people say, even Kate Jones, the minister, has said, oh, look, I really do believe that the member for surface paradise has the interests of his city at heart. So that's nice to get that acknowledgement. And then overall that, you know, people. one of the things that people have often said about me as opposition leader was, oh, he's a, he's a bit too nice. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the worst thing people can say about you and they'd say, well... Uh, then you know I'll I'll live with that because um, I'll let other people judge about my contribution. That's an interesting, a nice opposition leader. Is it? <laughs> yeah, well, that was the point that I apparently wasn't nasty enough to Anna Bly, so oh. who was the premier. But I still think that you know the most important thing is you've got to be genuine in this job. Yeah. If you try to be something that you're not, and there were times when I tried to give a fire and brimstone speech, uh, and people would say, "Oh, look, that's." him putting a bit of an act on there because he's not normally like that. Mm. And, of course, that came from my background as a dentist where screaming and yelling in the dental surgery doesn't usually lead to better outcomes. So <laughs> it's a bit hard to fire up as a politician and scream and yell at people when your nature is not necessarily to be like that. And I guess part of that comes into this um, question, which is um, say someone wants to run for a seat or they want to be more involved in party politics... What's sort of the biggest piece of advice you could give them? Um, and you mentioned there uh, uh, being genuine. Uh, would you say that's probably one of the biggest things you need to make sure you're being if you're going to become more involved in this job? Yeah, but you can't tell someone to be genuine. That's like tell- <laughs> a dentist telling you to relax when they're about to pull your tooth out. <laughs> yeah. You know, telling you to relax doesn't make you relax. You can't make people genuine if they're not genuine. But you know, people will work you out. Uh, if you know, if you'd said to me, "What is what's the advice you give to someone who wants to pursue a career like that?" Get involved. Mm. Just get involved. Because, but don't go along and say that you want to be a politician. Because I often would say to people, including uh, people who I'd sometimes see at schools, "I'd like to be a politician." You'd say, "Well, I really think you need to go out and live a life, and then." having lived a life and had another job or profession or skill that you then might say, I'd like to be a politician because I've already said I don't think it's something you can really do uh, and speak to people about really complex matters when you've only lived a pretty sheltered life and haven't really done a lot of stuff. Uh, And just coming back to your area, Mm -hmm. um, for the people that live here, uh, what are some... Oh, well, or people who live nearby or are visiting or whatever. Yeah. Um, what are some things to do or some community groups that they could get involved in in this area? Well, it's another perception about the Gold Coast that we sometimes don't have a lot of those community groups, and, of course, I see lots of them. I'm 
patron of many of them. We've got musical associations and choirs, rotary clubs, surf clubs. I've got many clubs in my electorate that, uh, as well as schools. And so getting involved in a voluntary capacity in any of those things, whether it's Meals on Wheels, any of the other community associations or bridge clubs, are all things that they can do to get more involved. And you'll always find someone who needs help. And um, where can people find you and you know, keep up to date with what you're doing in Parliament and in your area? Well, I've got a very modern <laughs> way of dealing with things. It used to just be reading it on the parliamentary hansard, which no one would read. So now we make sure that we're engaged, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We write columns for the Over 50s newsletter. We appear on local television station news because we're very close to the 7 and 9 Channel 7 and 9 have local news bulletins here, and I, of course, try to be very active with that. So, And, of course, people see me walking around the street. That's what I often say here at our local shopping centre, come over and say hello. Um, I still sometimes read Hansard. But yeah. Oh, do you? Well, some people do. And, in fact, there are some people who've asked me about whether when you're giving a speech, are you giving it for the people who are listening there and the people in the parliament. And I've often said I try to give quite considered contributions, which means that I'm often not off the cuff and just raving about things. I try to give a more considered contribution because I do do speeches for people who are going to read it in Hansard. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm going to put uh, all that sort of info in the episode description so where people can find you on things like Twitter and Facebook and... Mm. um, your website and all of that kind of stuff and um, some things to do in Surfers Paradise. Yeah. Um, but uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. Great to talk to you, Matt. Pleasure.